Well, if you would please turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. The sermon is listed as being on verses 24 through 27, um, but as I was finishing up uh, working on the manuscript last night, I I was through verse uh, 20, uh, what, 24, and I said, I'm 3,600 words into this manuscript, and I'm miles away from being done. Uh, so it's going to be a two-parter. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to set some context, and then skip to uh, verse 20 and read from there. Chapter 9. Sorry about that. So we're in Daniel chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord and made confession. And now continuing in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting the plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week... He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the protagonist, Arthur Dent, wakes up And it slowly dawns on him as he goes about his morning routine that there are several bulldozers and a demolition crew right in his front yard. For they're ready to level his home to clear land to make a highway bypass. 
Now, it took him on uh, a bit by surprise, even though the plans had been on display, because the plans were in the cellar of the local planning office where the lights were out, the staircase to the cellar was out, and the plans were stored on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on it saying, Beware of the Leopard. Now, Arthur's house may be in the way of a bypass, and it's not much of a home, but it's Arthur's home, and he doesn't want it demolished. And so while Arthur lies down in front of the bulldozer and argues with the local officials in his front garden, his best friend Ford Prefect shows up and says, well, we've got to go to the pub. And once at the pub, Ford explains that the earth is minutes away from being demolished in order to make a hyperspace bypass. And so Ford helps Arthur escape. But on the earth's destruction, Arthur Dent became a man without a home. And so he spends several years and a few novels traveling from one end of the universe to the other, seeing incredible things, having incredible adventures. But in the end, he's longing for home. And so during the fourth novel, he finds something actually a little bit better. He finds a nice, quiet little planet called Lamuella. But I say he found it, but he actually crashed there during a hyperspace accident. Anyway, it's a nice planet, a nice, comfortable climate. The days are 25 hours long, so you can sleep in every day. The years are only 300 days long, so that the year doesn't just drag on. And not only that, the only skill that Arthur really has is that he makes a killer sandwich. And so he finds a place in a quiet village on this quiet planet where he can make sandwiches and be honored for his skills. Well, if you could make a home exactly the way you wanted it, what would that home look like? I keep pretty busy. I like the idea of a 25 or even a 27-hour day so I can sleep in and get stuff done. Uh, I'd like a place where the sun is up until 9 p.m. all year round. Uh, Basically, I think what I want is to live on a covered deck in summertime in Corvallis year round. And to have everything I need outside my covered deck within walking distance. But you know, there's more to a home than that, isn't there? More to a home than our physical setting. But I think that when we think about these things, when you think of the longing you have, um, whether it's uh, uh, having a fishing stream in your backyard or uh, having a fridge that has 50 beer taps on it or whatever it is that you may desire, I think that when you think of those longings, it starts to help us in our limited way grasp a longing for our ultimate home. Because there's more to a sense of home than just the, the physical accoutrement. For there's the people you love. There's worshiping the God you love and believe in. And so on. 
And so we have this deep sense of longing to be at home and to be at rest with our friends, with our loved ones, with our God and Creator. And at the beginning of chapter 9, we find that Daniel has also been thinking about these things. For Daniel is a man who's far, far, far from home. He was sent into exile as a young man, possibly a teenager, in the year 605 B.C. Even if he somehow could go back home, it's a four-month walk. And he wouldn't find much when he got there. You know, Jerusalem has been desolated, destroyed, unfit for human habitation. And every indication we have is that in these long years, Daniel has never been back. But now, it's the year 539 B.C. Daniel's been reading in Jeremiah that it's going to be 70 years before God will restore the fortunes of Israel. And not only that, Babylon, God's instrument of judgment against Jerusalem, has passed away from the world scene and been supplanted by the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the time is drawing near for Daniel to think about going back home. And so Daniel breaks forth in prayer and confession, confessing his people's sins and his own sins, acknowledging that they deserve to be in exile and pleading with God to show mercy and to bring them home for the sake of his name. And you too, you're in exile here on this earth. You were made to enjoy fellowship with God. You were made to live in harmony with one another, in harmony with the natural world. But I don't have to tell you that you don't experience any of these things the way that you're longing for. I love the Leslie Newbegin quote. He says that by sin, we are in contradiction with God within ourselves, with each other, and with the natural world. You don't experience wholeness and peace and rest and home the way that you're longing for. You're not living your best life. And uh, no matter what you post on social media set to whatever upbeat songs, you can't. Not here on the earth as it is. And in your sins, you don't deserve any better. This was Daniel's confession, as he says in verse 7, that to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame in all the lands to which you have driven us. But God responds. God responds to Daniel's confession and pleading. And Daniel gets an answer to his prayer. God promises his mercy to Daniel. And yet as much as Daniel longs to be back home in Jerusalem, God tells him that he isn't longing for enough. For God promises Daniel something much bigger than an all-expenses-paid trip back to Jerusalem. God shows Daniel his even bigger plans for the future of his people far beyond the end of those 70 years. These are promises that have come true for you. I don't know what you think of when you think of home, when you think of rest, 
when you think of God's purposes for your future, but I can promise you this, that they're not big enough. So tonight we want to look at three elements of this passage. In verses 20 through 23, we learn a few things about Daniel, the man who wants to go home. And in the same verses, we learn about the God who wants to bring his people home. But in verse 24, verses 24 through 27, but tonight just verse 24, we look at the plan God has far beyond simply bringing his people home. And so a few aspects of Daniel's character revealed in verses 20 through 23. And we've seen time and time again in this book that Daniel is a faithful man. He cares deeply for God's honor. He has the wisdom to present the truths of God's glory to great kings and rulers. And he has a deep awareness of his own sins and his own shortcomings before a holy God. So these three aspects, his faithfulness, his wisdom, and his humility. Now first we see Daniel's faithfulness to God, and it's, it's very subtle right here, right? But in verse 21, Daniel notes that Gabriel comes to him when? At the time of the evening sacrifice. Now part of the religious life of the, of, of the Israelites was this system of daily, weekly, and monthly and annual sacrifices made to God. Uh, just as important to religious life as weekly church attendance, as daily time spent in prayer and reading the Bible, just as regular and expected as your, annual, or as your daily evening meal. But it's been 65 years since Daniel last participated in any of these sacrifices. And yet he still marks time by them. It's like if you knew what time it was here in 2021, because you know that's what time Sid Caesar's show of shows comes on. Daniel may not be able to go and worship God at the temple, but we've seen consistently that he does everything he can do. For he studies God's word. We've seen that he prays three times a day. And this is a kind of faithfulness to God that we all would do well to emulate in consistent prayer and time spent hearing from God and his word. And church history is just rich with wonderful guides. Um, My personal favorite for prayer is Martin Luther's A Simple Way to Pray. He writes about ways to pray according to the themes of the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and so on. It's easy to find online. It's so good. But beyond Daniel's faithfulness. We also see his wisdom at work. But this is not a wisdom that comes from himself. This wisdom in this passage, at least, comes from a message that Gabriel presents that's able to make Daniel understand. For as it says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. For Daniel has sought wisdom from God and his word through his entire life, and God continues to grant him wisdom now. And we see in in the stories of the first half of this book how Daniel has learned the lessons that God has to teach him. For remember, the Bible preaches or portrays wisdom as a knowledge of God that leads us to walk the way we should. Wisdom is a moral category. 
God can and will make you wise if you listen to him. Looking in the scriptures, listening to good preaching, asking him to give you wisdom to apply these truths to your life. So Daniel is faithful, he is wise, but he's also humble. He's aware of his shortcomings, for he is confessing his sin and the sin of his people Israel. And that leaves me kind of stunned because through all of these stories uh, of this book, I, I, can't, I can't find a sin of Daniel's in the entire book, but he knows that he has them. He knows that God is the only true hero, the only true perfect one. And so, so Daniel has done many good things to glorify God during his career as a Babylonian and Persian official, but he's still aware that he's a sinner And on his own, he deserves nothing from God, not even the next breath that passes through his nostrils. And so if a man like Daniel can confess his sins to God, don't you think that you have just as much, if not more, to confess? I know that it's true of me. If you knew my confessions, you would chase me from this pulpit and beat me into the parking lot, I promise you. But here's the thing. Daniel knows that God has promised mercy and that as a righteous God, he will keep his promises. And so Daniel doesn't confess his sins as though they're too big for God to forgive, too numerous for God to forgive, for he just confesses honestly and trusts God to follow through and have mercy And so it is with you. God has promised to forgive the sins of those who have faith in Christ. And God will not be faithless to his own promise because he is righteous. And so we see here faithfulness, wisdom, and an awareness of his shortcomings. We have a portrait of a man who wants to go home. And the thing is that when you fit this pattern too, you will find a longing for things that this world can't offer to you. The world may promise it, but it can't follow through. Time spent in God's presence through his word and prayer changes you. It stirs up your desire for the things that only God can give you. A desire to live according to his righteousness. A trust in him to provide for your most important needs. A healthy disdain for the yardsticks of wealth fame and beauty, and yet a compassion for those who still measure themselves by those very yardsticks. Your loves will become rightly ordered, as Augustine will say, and you'll find that you have a desire for a home that's not found in this world, a place where those desires are fully satisfied by God. And you'll learn to find them only in God. And you can be sure that this God is a God who wants to bring you and all the rest of his people home. And so we turn to a couple of things that we learn about this God. We see God's love for his people and that he wants his people to understand his purposes to bring them home. And so... As, as, God, as Daniel confesses his and Israel's sins, Gabriel reassures him, you are greatly loved. 
And this love is the basis for, uh, for the message that, that Gabriel delivers to Daniel from God. Don't you think it reassures Daniel to hear this message? He'll hear it again in chapter 10. It's, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For Daniel has seen terrifying things. Daniel uh, has, uh, has, has seen his friends thrown in the fiery furnace, or at least heard about it. We don't know if he saw it, but he's heard about it. Um, he's n- known that the sword was waiting for his neck. And yet God rescued him. And Daniel sees terrifying things in these visions, things that leave him appalled, that leave him sick for days and weeks. But as Daniel sees these things and as he confesses his sins, God reassures him that he is greatly loved. And that's a message for all of God's people. We read, for example, in Romans 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How's that for assurance? You know your place with God, loved by Him as His own Son. Another of my favorite passages from Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the essence of God's love, of Christ's love for you, for he gave himself for your benefit. He gave himself on the cross in order to live in you, to change the course of your life and to cause you to walk in newness of life. And an element of that love is that he wants his people to understand his purposes for them. God puts his love for Daniel into practice, we see here, by revealing to Daniel his good purposes for his people. By extension, since you too get to hear God's purposes as revealed to Daniel, you are also a recipient of the same kind of love that God poured out for Daniel. God has never operated in darkness. He doesn't leave us to guess how we ought to act in a way that pleases him. He gives us his law to understand how to please him. He, likewise, he had prophets and apostles record the stories of Israel and of Jesus so that we could hear the gospel and know everything that we need to be saved, to be made right in his sight. And along the way, he occasionally gives us a glimpse of his plans for the the future of his people so that you can be confident and not afraid. You can trust that he will follow through on everything that he said he'll do. So there's just a little bit about what we learn about God, for he loves his people and he wants to be understood by them. And so we come to God's revelation of his plan to bring his people home. Now look at the context again. Daniel is concerned for the return of his people to Jerusalem. 
And so God responds with a message that is meant to bring him comfort. God is assuring Daniel that he will follow through on his good purposes to bring his people home and that he has a definite plan to make it happen. But God also shows Daniel that he has a plan that's bigger than just bringing his people home to Jerusalem. For he has a plan for their comprehensive salvation. And we see this in the first few words of verse 24. It says, 70 weeks or 70 sevens are decreed. Look, Daniel's been concerned about 70 years. Seven times 10, two numbers indicating completeness. Completeness on top of completeness. But God raises the stakes. God has a decree of 70 sevens. Daniel cares about seven times 10, but God has a plan for 70 times 10 times 7. C.S. Lewis writes so insightfully, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And even Daniel's godly, good desire to go back home to Jerusalem is far too small for what God actually plans in store for his people. And God breaks down his description of these 70 weeks in this way. First, in verse 24, as we'll study for just a little bit longer tonight, he explains the purpose of his plan for these 70 weeks. And then next time we'll look at verses 25 through 27 where he explains the specifics of the plan to accomplish that purpose. And there's just too, I mean, it's already six o'clock. There's just too much to wrestle with in these four verses to cram into a single sermon, not, not if we're going to do it any justice. Um, so we're going to finish tonight with verse 24, God's intended purpose of his, for his people. And so next time we'll look in detail at the specifics of the plan. So God has his purpose for these 70 weeks. It says here that it is, well, well, we'll start with to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Uh, perhaps a slightly more literal translation would be to bring an end to transgression, to seal sin, and to atone for iniquity. And however exactly you translate it, you see what God has in mind. He's going to put a stop to sin. He's going to end sin's power to enslave his people. And the sacrifice to deal with sin's guilt will be offered and accepted. Sin won't be present among God's people. Sin won't enslave his people. And sin won't render his people guilty and deserving of death any longer. I don't know how much you feel the weight of your sins crushing you down. But no matter how great your sins are, no matter how unworthy you feel, God is working a plan to deal with sin in its totality so that you can be set free. 
But what are you free to do? God's plan is to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's a righteousness external to God's people. That's why it has to be brought in. But in verse 7, Daniel says that righteousness belongs to God. This is God's own righteousness. God's righteousness that's eternal and rooted in His character, applied to His people. Applied to His people both in the, the judgment that we are innocent in His sight and in the ongoing promise to sanctify us, to make us walk in keeping with what's right. And one day, when we stand at the judgment seat to be declared innocent and to enter into the, into the everlasting kingdom where it will no longer be possible for us to sin, but we will be renewed and glorified and made like Christ. And so next we have to seal vision and prophet. And the usual mode of prophecy in the Old Testament was a vision given to the prophet from God. That's not every mode of prophecy, but that's the usual one. And God promises instead a future where vision and prophet will no longer be necessary because the purpose of those visions will be accomplished and God's people will live in their reality. And finally, we have to anoint a most holy place, or again, more literally, to anoint a holy place of holies. But there's something curious about this. Usually when we're talking about the room in the temple, we talk about the holy of holies. What's what's with the absence of that definite article here? God has something or someone different in mind to anoint his most holy and this is somewhat reflected in your ESV footnote. It says, it says that it could be um, a most holy thing or a most holy one. Uh, but again, it's literally a, most, or a holy of holies. And that matter of anointing is a crucial clue for kings and priests are anointed to their offices. And this entire plan of God that we've seen in these six phrases we've looked at is a plan to bring an anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, to do all these things on behalf of God's people, to to put these things into effect for sinners like you and me. For God has shown Daniel he has a plan far greater than bringing his people home to Jerusalem. And in time, in the course of time, we find that this plan is summed up in Jesus and all that he has done. Like it says in in Hebrews chapter 1, in former times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. Or in John chapter 1, that we have seen his glory. He came and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so who else deals with your sins and your community's sins, like Jesus does on the cross? Who else is able to apply God's righteousness to you so that you are right with God? Who else fulfills all the prophets foretold? 
and who brought the holiness of God into the world like Jesus did. Jesus is the one that Daniel was awaiting to bring him home, but not just to bring him home, to do so much more than that, more than he could ask or imagine, to deal with his sin comprehensively, to be God's righteousness for him as a gracious gift, and to sanctify him and cause him to walk in holiness. And that's what Christ is for you too, and for all the people who put their trust in him. And so we see the purpose of God's plan for his people is revealed to Daniel, but God doesn't just tell Daniel that he has a plan to do these things. He tells him a little bit about what that plan will look like, and that's what we'll look at next time. But for now, we're left with these two portraits and a purpose. We see the faithfulness, the wisdom, and the humility of a man who seeks a return home. We see the love of God who shows him that he will bring him home. He reveals his good purpose. So let the promise of your heavenly home and the fact Jesus has given you a foretaste in this age by his death and resurrection change your life. Don't look for satisfaction here on earth. Look for it in your heavenly home where God lives to love you. And by his grace, you will go home again. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that there is a heavenly home in, in your heavenly throne room that you invite us into in a spiritual sense when we pray, for we have access by the blood of Christ who lives now and pleads on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit bringing Uh, bringing your presence to be with us and pouring your love into our hearts always. And so, Father, we pray that you will cause us to live in light of the home that we are seeking, that we know that we will come to one day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.